Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Moses Kisa, Assistant Professor at the School of Public and International Affairs at North Carolina State University and a research associate with the Center for Basic Research in Kampala. We discussed the recent elections in Uganda, in which President Yoweri Museveni won his sixth term against populist challenger and former pop star Bobby Wine, and placed them in the context of Uganda's much longer slide towards authoritarianism and the failed neoliberal reforms of the 1990s. We also discussed the challenges of the pandemic in Uganda, the mounting threat of climate breakdown in the country, and the question of where change is going to come from. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want to access the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, please support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Moses Kisa on what Museveni's recent victory means for the future of Uganda. Hello, Moses Kisa, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. So I want to start today by talking a little bit about the recent elections in Uganda, in which authoritarian leader President Museveni won his sixth re-election victory, despite his party losing a number of seats. But the election was marred by accusations of fraud. Can you tell us a little bit more about the irregularities we saw during the election and the heavy-handed tactics that were used to crush protests before it, including things like shutting down the internet? Well, anybody who has closely followed uh, Uganda's electoral landscape would have in the least not been surprised by what happened because that has been the story of Uganda's elections and and political situation for a long time now. Uh, Mm. Since at least 2001, the elections, presidential especially, that have been conducted in Uganda have been anything but free and fair. As a matter of fact, the country's topmost court, the Supreme Court, on two occasions in 2001 and 2006, ruled that the election had been conducted in a manner that violated the law and that there were so many irregularities. Only that the court, in a split decision, I believe 3-2 in 2001 and 4-3 in 2006, declined to annul the election result on the understanding that the court was not fully convinced that those irregularities and those problems with the election had altered the outcome in a substantial manner. But it is also on record by one of the Supreme Court judges who was on the quorum in 2006 that actually the judges had initially agreed to annul the election in a decision that would have been 5-2. Only that, at the 11th hour, the night before they were to render their verdict, at least two of the judges were contacted by state actors, presumably the president himself, and that they had been you know, compelled 
intimidated to change their opinion and rule in favor of upholding the election result rather than annulling it. Mm. It's also alleged that uh, one or two of the judges may have been given some financial inducement. Anyway, the point is that Uganda has been holding elections every five years, but those elections are marred by fraud, by alt-right rigging on polling day. But I think most importantly, elections in a country like Uganda are not rigged on polling day. The rigging and the unfairness happens long before polling day. Because I want to tell you that when you are an opposition presidential candidate in Uganda, you're not competing against an incumbent candidate called Museveni. You're competing against the state of Uganda. The whole state is coercive and non-coercive apparatus are used by the incumbent against his opponents. And so it's simply impossible for anybody, however popular they may be, however appealing they may be, to successfully compete against Museveni because the environment, the landscape, and the atmosphere are so skewed against those opposing Museveni and in favor of him, including the election management body itself. The Electoral Commission is not independent or credible or even competent to adjudicate an election in a manner that guarantees free and fair processes and outcomes. And that is the sum of Uganda's election under Museveni. And I don't see that happening for as long as Museveni is still at the top on the ballot. He doesn't believe in free and fair competition. He believes that it is his right to be president because somehow he has a certain messianic mission that he's supposed to accomplish and that that means he should be president for as long as he wants to be. Hmm. You've anticipated one of my next questions there um, because this victory is part of a much longer slide towards authoritarianism in Uganda. And You're absolutely right. This is not, yeah. not uh, happening, happening suddenly or over, overnight. It's, it's a long, gradual, tip, 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 down, uh, drop, drop towards real, real blunt authoritarianism. Yeah. And when you look at it from a number of different perspectives, whether we're thinking about the judiciary or, you know, his general control over much of the apparatus of the Ugandan state or the constraints on freedom of the press, the kind of environment does seem to have deteriorated quite substantially over, you know, the entirety of his term. Do you think that we're going to see a further slide towards authoritarianism, perhaps using the pandemic as a kind of justification for much more extreme measures under Museveni's next term? Well, the this, this slide into blunt and deep authoritarianism has been happening. I wonder if it can go any deeper. You know, it looks like for Museveni, mm-hmm. the bottom of the pit cannot be reached. You know, when you think that he has sunk deep, he keeps going even deeper. And you're absolutely right about the pandemic. The pandemic has been weaponized and instrumentalized in a way that has granted Museveni the justification and the latitude to engage in excesses, but also to abuse his power, including, by the way, abusing the financial resources of the country, getting all sorts of budgetary allocations in the name of you know, classified expenditure during security operations uh, around you know, law enforcement for lockdowns and that kind of stuff, but also... A lot of monies went towards non-security COVID activities, you know, through different government departments, including uh, the presidency itself, and and has been a lot of corruption around 
around that as well. I mean, Museveni's regime has, you know, among other things, been very high on matters of official corruption, and the pandemic has just worsened that. There seemed to be some hope within Uganda and especially around the world that there was a chance that Museveni might be defeated this time. Was his election victory simply a matter of, of authoritarianism and vote rigging, or does Museveni retain some genuine popularity in parts of the country? Two things there to separate, um, Grace. Number one, the hope around the world was false. Mm. Anybody who has been following Ugandan politics very closely would not have been in the least excited in the manner that foreign media, especially Western media, became so excited and obsessed. In fact, as I've written recently about it, you know, uh, ended up fetishizing the candidate mm. of uh, supposedly a popular pop star and a new actor who was going to sweep Museveni out of power. That excitement and enthusiasm and sort of thinking that somehow this was something different was completely mistaken because it, it, it it's a failure to grasp the actual dynamics and forces on the ground. And that leads me to the second point I want to make, which is that you see, Museveni has been gradually um, becoming uh, less and less popular. That is not to say that he's, he's, he does not have any popularity. That's not to say that he doesn't have any support. Uh, it's a question of, you know, how much support does he have and how much other support can he get through intimidation, bribery, patronage, and all other ways of renting support. So as an incumbent and as a, a ruler who has been in power for 35 years, he's cultivated all sorts of patronage networks and linkages and connections that enable him to keep around a network of you know, actors and you know, um, individuals and groups that are part of his support base. Now, that support base has been shrinking, you know, as we saw especially in central Uganda during the elections, but it doesn't mean that he's without any support at all. Remember, as I said, even if he did not have any support, even if the opposition candidates were a lot popular than he is, don't forget that those opposition candidates are competing against the state. You know, yeah. the odds are so stacked against them. The task, it's such a big and Herculean task for anybody to do when competition is one between opposition parties and politicians versus an incumbent who has the full control and command of the state behind him. How, how does that kind of competition lead to any other outcome other than the incumbent getting, quote-unquote, re-elected? Mm. Uh, let's talk a bit about um, the main challenger to Museveni, Bobby Wine, the pop star turned opposition leader. He seemed to have the support of much of Uganda's youth, which is obviously very large. Uganda's a very young country. Do you think that this defeat is going to kind of reduce the energy that there clearly is for change amongst the youth in Uganda? Or do you think that this is a, a challenge for Museveni, that he that there is this kind of divide between the younger and older generations as to support for him versus support for change? We'll, we'll wait and see what happens. But there's no doubt that you know Uganda has been shifting rapidly. Uh, demographically, 
and economically, you know, socioeconomically, demographically, and, and many other variables have been shifting in a way that we seven simply cannot keep up pace with. Mm-hmm. And and for me, it's just a matter of, you know, time. <laughs> seven cannot defy history and nature forever. I mean, he, he's been in power for 35 years old. When he came to power, I was a little boy, you know, still mm-hmm. uh, perhaps, you know, being carried around. Now I consider myself an old man who has children, right? There are so many Ugandans who know nothing about what happened in Uganda in the 1970s and early 80s, which is what Museven has always used to justify his stay in power, which is that, you know, he uh, brought peace and stability that had eluded the country for a lo- the country for a long time. And so it's him who can guarantee a prosperous and progressive Uganda. That no longer sells among the many young people in Uganda. Uganda mm. is such a young country, and this is something that many people have you know, banded around quite a bit, but it, it is true. You know, we are such a young country in terms of the population and, and the age. And so so there's no way M7 is going to defy this forever. The question is, what happens down the road? In my view, it's, it's M7 is, 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 is deluded into believing that he is somebody on a mission to liberate Uganda and liberate Africa and transform Uganda and transform Africa into you know developed country and and continent and because he has that delusion he doesn't want anybody to tell him that his time is up and that he has to leave and he's willing to fight to stay in power and if if he must leave power you know at one point it looked like he would hand over power to one of his family members either his son or his wife that looks increasingly unlikely. It looks like the man himself wants to die in power. Mm. And short of him dying in power, he's willing to fight it out. Now, can can the young people and Bobby Wine, who has been rallying them and, and inspiring them, actually confront Museveni in any way? If they went the violent way, that is what Museveni loves most. Museveni is a, is a military man. He's a violent entrepreneur. And he's somebody who wants to be dared in a violent confrontation. If you go that path, he's going to take you on. Now, we don't know what would happen in that kind of encounter. Uganda has had a fair share of, you know, um, you know armed insurgency and, and violent conflict. And I don't think that the country can go that direction again anytime in the future. But who knows? Things could break down pretty much quickly. Uh, the thing is that Street politics in Uganda now has deteriorated so much that young people, many of them unemployed or underemployed, uneducated or undereducated, are so desperate as to be willing to do anything. And that presents a big, big challenge to Seven. And, and, and only time can tell how he will be able to wither the current wave that is definitely up against him in a manner that he has very little control over. Mm. You actually anticipated my next question again there, because I was going to say that one of the narratives he uses um, to kind of, you know, justify his his position and to uh, increase his, his support is that, you know, Uganda has experienced before him decades of war and turmoil that many people remember and kind of look to him as, um, as someone who put an end to that period. And that maybe for younger people who might not think back to those times so much, the appeal of change is much greater and actually, you know, this, you know, bringing this on to my next question, because you've already answered this question about the potential for future political violence. 
there does seem to be this throughout sub-Saharan Africa, something of a struggle emerging between the young who are suffering from lots of economic hardship as a result of things like, you know, um, the economic conditions created by first the post-financial crisis world, now the pandemic, the kind of constant struggle for employment, for reductions in inequality that's happening within sub-Saharan Africa as a whole. And yet politics is largely dominated by the old. We've seen similar sorts of rebellions against this in in Nigeria and and some other parts of sub-Saharan Africa recently. Where do you think this kind of young versus old struggle is is going to go next? Do you think it's an accurate way of understanding Africa's problems? There is definitely a very important aspect of the generational divide in many African countries. And Uganda is very much emblematic of that divide, where you have a huge uh, mass of um, population who are young, they have, you know, aspirations and intentions to a modern and, and you know, prosperous life. And especially because they are living in an era where um, there is, you know, quick and rapid flow of information and, you know, they have exposure to, you know, the rest of the world. And, and they can see, you know, elsewhere um, uh, things happening in a certain way. And, and they have to ask questions about their own country. Why, you know, why, why can't we be... a more prosperous country like, you know, another country somewhere else, you know, or be a more prosperous continent than other continents are. And and, and the young people who are asking those questions do not have the, the power and the authority to, you know, provide answers to the questions they're asking. So the questions have to go to the older generations who are, mm. who are in power and who have, you know, dominated and controlled uh, resources, both um, you know, political power, but also material resources of, of of different stripes. If you look at a country like Uganda, just you know, we're not just talking about Museveni; we're talking about the whole government. You look at the government, such an mm. old such a collection of old fellows. You know, none of the top five Ugandan government officials, I would say, uh, in fact, across the branches. I think even if you took the top ten Ugandan government officials across. Uh, the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature, you're not going to find a below 50 years person there. Perhaps the youngest person you're going to find there will be like 55 or even closer to 60. Uh, otherwise, you know, there are other people. You know, the president is officially 76 or something like that. Some people think that he could be older than 76. His vice president is also 70-something. The prime minister is 70-something. The chief justice, I think, should be 60-something. You know, you can go on and on. The speaker of parliament is also not that young. These are people who are not able to keep up with the trends and the pace. You know, this is we are living in the 21st century, for heaven's sake. And there's no way such old people can have a proper grasp and be able to deal with the 21st century challenges. So the, the generational question remains very central. The other point, though, is that things would have been perhaps different. Maybe the generational issue wouldn't have arisen if the rulers, if those in the government did not do things that have failed to match up to the challenges of the day. Mm. The resources of the African continent, all the endowments that countries like Uganda have, have been going to waste being, you know, uh, hemorrhaged by all sorts of, you know, uh, 
terrible policies, economic policies. You know, a country like Uganda undertook very misguided liberalization and privatization of the economy in the 1990s in a way that threw the Ugandan economy into the uncharted waters of, you know, a supposed free market, you know, uh, environment. Mm. And those policies of liberalization and, and, and privatization have not grown the Ugandan economy and brought about the kind of opportunities that the vast majority of the citizens need. So, so you have a real dire socioeconomic situation. Economic desperation is real. And, and, and who are the you know, biggest victims of economic desperation? They are young people, you know, mm. uh, and, and they, they don't see hope in, in, in today, let alone tomorrow. And that is a source of anger and a source of indignation that we see across the continent. We saw quite a bit of that with the Arab Spring in North Africa in 2011, mm. 2012. Uh, the same smoldering fire did move you know, further south in sub-Saharan Africa. It did not bring down authoritarian regimes the way it did in North Africa. But, but the, the cascade has been on, and I don't think that that trend is going to be stopped anytime soon. Now I want to talk a little bit about the pandemic and the economic and political impact it's had in Uganda. Uganda seems to have tackled the virus relatively successfully, having just 300 deaths. How much do you think that this has been about the lockdown measures imposed by the government and how much do you think is just due to Uganda's young population? A couple of things. One, definitely the, 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 the young population for the country and for the continent as a whole, by the way, is something mm. that many people have underlined as an important variable that may have made a big difference. We don't know for sure what, how much of a difference that the young population has made, but, but it's something that many people have you know, talked about, you know, oftentimes by way of speculation, we have to say. And so, so in the case of Uganda, definitely, if indeed you know, a young population is less uh, vulnerable and less likely to be adversely affected by the virus, then Uganda has, in that sense, benefited from the fact that it's a country with a relatively young population. But the second point is that we, we really don't know for sure the extent of the impact of the virus in a country like Uganda, where mm-hmm. the, the records the records are not very rigorously, you know, evaluated and kept. And so, you know, if you're talking about deaths, yeah, you know, we, we've not had those very many deaths, but we really don't know for sure the accurate number. And same thing with, you know, mm. actual infections, you know, in a country where the testing capabilities are far limited, it's difficult to know the exact number of infections that a country like Uganda may have had. Of course, as you know, even in, you know, Western nations, developed countries like the UK or the United States, uh, there have been concerns about, we don't know the exact number of infections because mm. the testing has not been very aggressive and very rigorous. Mm. But that being said, it's, you know, the, the virus nevertheless has had a, a big impact on Uganda. The lockdown that was instituted early on in April did, you know, bring the economy to a standstill. Uh, a lot of, you know, businesses, especially small businesses, definitely suffered. You know, even though, by the way, for, for a long time, there were no deaths from the virus, mm. we had deaths from enforcement operations by you know the military and 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 the police you know people people are killed and and we had all sorts of you know human rights violations 
because of you know excesses of the armed forces in enforcing the lockdown. And you know, again, you know, as you said, you rightly said, I agree. You know, the Ugandan government does you know deserve some credit. Seven himself does you know take some credit for taking measures that potentially helped in mitigating the adverse effects of the virus. The Minister of Health of Uganda, I think, did well initially, in part benefiting from previous experience handling pandemics like Ebola mm. and others. Uh, and the Ugandan military was involved as well in, in, in you know, activities around the, the pandemic. But with time, those initial successes and good ratings that the government got, they got wiped away by the many wrong things that started going on, including, you know, abuse of COVID funds, uh, but also, you know, human rights abuses. Mm. And then, you know, uh, when the elections, when the campaign season set in, you had, you know, the selective application of the law, you know, with Minister of Health, uh, Electoral Commission, police and the military, you know, wanting to have standard operating procedures and restrictions placed on Museveni's opponents, but not Museveni and his NRM party. And so there were there were double standards and selective application of uh, of the standards and the and the regulations during the campaign season, uh, and of course that you know played to the, to the advantage of Seven. You know he had the free way and and the latitude to do whatever he wanted with the campaigns, uh, but not his opponents. Hmm. You mentioned there that the economy was hit quite badly initially, and whilst it's it's recovered somewhat, Uganda is still struggling amid a fall in remittances and the need for higher government spending at a time of mass capital flight out of most of the global south and uh, and most of sub-Saharan Africa. I've seen already uh, in the Daily Monitor calls for a fall in, in, uh, in government spending to reduce the public debt. Do you think there's going to be calls from within and outside Uganda, so from its creditors as well, for cuts to vital government services when the pandemic is over? That's likely because it's mm. it's been done in the past. You know, the whole economic reform programs of the early 1990s, among other things, entailed massive you know downsizing of the civil service and the public sector more generally, the privatization of state state owned enterprises and government businesses meant that many people you know lost their jobs and you know the country has never actually recovered since then because you know the unemployment has just kept surging and going up and up every year that passes and with the current situation it's very possible that you know uh, because of you know budgeting shortfalls along with the rising debt and and and, and the country not being able to you know get the kind of uh, foreign investments that it needs there is a possibility that you know, many government programs are, are going to be affected you know and given the current political environment in which Museveni is increasingly repressive and perhaps might turn off some of his you know, Western donors and, and, and supporters that have always given him the financial muscle to exercise, it's possible that you know, some government funding may be cut and by extension there will be job losses and there will be you know, further economic hardships. But I think for me, the bigger issue for the Ugandan economy has always been the superficial growth that many people talk about, which is unsustainable and which is mm. which cannot bring about real social economic transformation. What do I mean? 
For a long time, Uganda has been hyped as one of the best performing African economies. Uh, why? Because you know, the GDP growth has been modest. Although some people think it's been very impressive, I, mean, I think it's been only modest. If you have, if you're a poor country and your GDP growth over 10, 20 years averages, you know, five, six percent. Yeah, I think that's quite modest. You know, if you are mm. a, a poor country and you really want to turn around things, perhaps in the manner that, for example, China has been doing or that South Korea did, you need double-digit GDP growth, right? Because you, you're beginning from a very low base. Okay. Now, Uganda and a few other African countries have had steady and modest, you know, growth over time which though has been overblown and overhyped. The problem though for me is that that growth has happened in areas, in sectors that do not bring about real structural transformation. When you have your growth concentrated in the services sector, which tends to be the target for hot capital inflows and speculation by foreign actors working with domestic, domestic economic actors, you know, if you see your growth is coming from the real estate, you know, industry, construction, coming from, you know, the banking sector, insurance, in retail trade, and you don't have that much of growth in, you know, manufacturing, in value-added production, in mm. agriculture, which is, you know, where the vast majority of Ugandans uh, eke out a living, where the vast majority of Ugandans depend for their livelihoods. If you don't have growth, robust growth happening in those core sectors, you know, sectors that can create real jobs and jobs that are strong and sustainable, then the growth that you are experiencing, the growth that you are having is ephemeral and it's bound to be blown away anytime. But also it's the kind of growth, even if it goes on for a long time, it's going to lead to inequitable outcomes in terms of income and wealth. There's going to be very few people benefiting from the economy as it grows and the vast majority of the country not being, not being able to benefit because they are not part of the growth. The growth is not inclusive in other words. Mm. I mean, you've really touched on the key issue there. The bigger picture is that countries like Uganda are kept in a kind of permanent state of underdevelopment because they've been forced to open up, in inverted commas, their economies to the rest of the world. So are frequently harmed by capital flight, changes in commodity prices, tax avoidance and evasion, which are obviously facilitated in many ways by financial institutions located in the global north. To what extent do you think the most of Uganda's problems can be laid squarely at the feet of the government? Or do you think that actually it's this combination of corruption and authoritarianism amongst political elites within the country, encouraged and often reinforced by actors in the rest of the world that attempt to enforce these kind of Washington consensus or Wall Street consensus policies on states in the global south? It's the latter. It's a combination. And, and it's it's always been like that, Chris. Um, mm. You know, the, and Uganda is a very good case study of that, that intersection and interface between local uh, dynamics and global interests and global forces. So Uganda, you know, for a long time was propped up by the IMF and the World Bank as a star student of economic market reforms. You know, Museveni um, was uh, for a long time perhaps the best student 
of the Washington consensus because he he basically you know undertook the kind of reforms that must have left the IMF and the World Bank super impressed. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I I've lived around the world in different countries and continents. I've never seen an economy as liberalized and privatized as Uganda's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, wow. And and that happened at the behest of M7. Uh, and he did that for his own personal and political interests. But he also did it with the pressure and propelling from, from the West, from the outside world. You know, the IMF and the World Bank in the 1990s desperately wanted to find a success story to sell for their pushing of, you know, quote-unquote free market, you know, economic reforms around the world. And so the international financial institutions, uh, the United States, the UK, and other external actors definitely played very important roles in pushing the conditionalities and the uh, sort of uh, you know pressures and demands that drove Uganda in the direction where it went. And Museveni needed to do that to be able to benefit from you know external funding, from donor aid flows, and to help you know support his state building initiatives and activities uh, by tapping into. Western military aid you know, from the United mm. States and from the UK in exchange for him being a good student of the Washington consensus and neoliberalism, he mm. got back you know, a lot of military aid. He got back a lot of uh, funding for, for his government, for his you know, uh, annual budget. You know, there was a time when the Ugandan budget was funded, majority of it, by uh, Western donors. You know? And up to now, a lot of you know, development Budget funding for Uganda comes from you know grants and loans from from outside. Of course, in recent years, Museven you know Museven's a very clever guy. He's a strategist. He's somebody who plays long ball. He's in the recent past diversified his dependency away from too much of the West and has mm. brought into his orbit uh, China, uh, Japan, mm. uh, and other new uh, emerging. You know, global economic powers that are interested in doing business in Uganda uh, and Africa more generally. So now, increasingly, you know, he gets you know funding from China, from Japan. I think there is a bit of Turkey and Russia that might also be involved in uh, supporting him here and there. Uh, although, of course, he remains heavily as well reliant on his traditional Western benefactors. You know, uh, whether Western financial institutions. Or Western powers, and so I mean, in some I would say it's a combination of both. You know, it's it's the mm. external uh, dimension that includes financial institutions, uh, but also multinational corporations and capitalists' interests uh, mm. that are looking for opportunities around the world. And you know, they see Uganda, you know, promising in many ways. You know, in the recent past, there has been a lot of focus on Ugandan oil, which is you know a new a new dynamic in, in Uganda's mm. political economy. But but we cannot, of course, um, you know, lay everything at the feet of external foreign actors and, you know, exempt the local Ugandan political and economic actors who have been very active in, you know, moving the agenda and driving the country in the direction where it has gone. Mm. Another issue um, that uh, I suppose has been caused predominantly by external actors and which Uganda is currently facing at the moment is climate breakdown. 
and large parts of Uganda are, are already experiencing the effects of climate breakdown, um, which is going to create serious issues for the population and for the wider economy in years to come. And as you said, this is all mixed in with this new dynamic of the discovery of oil and what that means for Ugandan politics. And yet it has been very hard to access funding for the mitigation of climate breakdown in many countries around the world from international institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, there's been lots of talk in the global north about this idea of the kind of green new deal but um it seems to me that it's going to be very difficult to realize any of the hopes or expectations of those who want to fight climate change without providing some support to states in the global south do you think that resource and technology transfers would help states like Uganda to kind of mitigate climate breakdown? Or do you think this is just going to end up being brought into those networks of patronage that you mentioned are used to prop up Museveni's regime? Well, there's no doubt that, you know, a country like Uganda badly, badly needs technological transfer Mm. and improving the way many things are done, including energy access and, you know, sources of, of fuel that do not despoil the environment. And, and I can mm. tell you, as a Ugandan who has grown up in Uganda, and I know the country firsthand, there has been an incredible change in the climate in, in, in Uganda. There's no doubt about mm. it. You know, when we're growing up as, as, as you know, young people in Uganda in the 1980s and 90s, it was always very predictable when you would expect that this is going to be the rain season and when it would be sunny, dry, and hot season. That sort of clear-cut demarcation of the different seasons in a year seems to have been totally distorted in recent years. I mean, I've been in Uganda in recent years, and you get to have the rain falling when it shouldn't be falling, when it is not Mm. rain season, right? And you've been having, uh, you know, certain times when there is an extended duration, an extended period of drought, of, you know, very hot and dry uh, sunshine. And and so this, and then, you know, wind has rained sometimes, the flooding has been, you know, unbelievable, you know. In recent years, uh, actually recent months last year, there were all sorts of reports around the situation with Lake Victoria, which is this big, you know, freshwater body that straddles several East African countries. And the waters had been rising in, in Lake Victoria and claiming islands, you know, sweeping away islands, right? right. So, so a lot has been going on with, with climate mm. change in Uganda without any doubt. Now, the question is, does Museveni and his government see climate change as a real threat that needs to be prioritized? No. Mm. In fact, his government has you know, presided over the destruction of wetlands, the total disregard of protection of the environment. Uh, You've had very many controversial cases where um, otherwise government-protected forest lands have been either given away and cut down for whatever, you know, economic activity. You know, one of the most dubious being growing sugarcane, you know, for, for sugar production, you know. I mean, can you imagine that a serious government gives away a protected forest land in the name of an investor investing in sugar production. You know, 
how, how does a country like Uganda really benefit from sugar production in a way that justifies sacrificing a forest that that plays a very important ecosystem role? So, so the the Museven government and, and and there have been many controversial cases of land being reclaimed uh, in wetlands that are supposed to be uh, protected by the National Environmental Management Authority, you know, which is the statutory agency charged with protection of, you know, water body of, 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 of the environment generally, including wetlands. The, the government has had a very uh, lackluster, to say the least, uh, otherwise a real dubious uh, approach to protecting the environment. And so, you know, to answer your question, Grace, you know, regardless of what the outside world might want to do in protecting mm. the environment in Uganda, for as long as the government is not responsive, does not take climate change seriously as an existential problem. You know, Museven and his people, people around him still think that, oh, you know, a country like Uganda is poor. It has a lot to lose by remaining poor than it can gain by developing, even if it is at the cost of the environment. That is sort of the warped and misguided logic with which they, they, they reason on, on this kind of matter. Mm. We were speaking earlier about the problems that Uganda is experiencing directly as a result of the pandemic in the economy. And there, I think, is an increasing realisation around the world that we are not going to see a recovery from the pandemic whilst many states in the global south are either in or on the brink of a debt crisis, which could potentially become much more severe. Now, you know, Uganda obviously isn't in as dire a situation as somewhere like Zambia, for example, but there does seem to be a, a potential growing threat that certainly if we don't see a return to growth soon, and also if we don't see a, a quick rollout of the vaccine, which is obviously being kind of monopolized by states in the global north, then the recovery will be threatened. Do you think that calls for a kind of global debt jubilee for the global south are the right move are, are the right thing for campaigners in the global north to be arguing for and uh, the same uh, with regards to vaccine technology being made freely available i i, I have to be frank by um i have mixed sense of this issue i mean mm. in the past i used to be a strong believer in you know uh, debt forgiveness is something that poor nations need to benefit from because Debt is something that undermines provision of basic public goods and services uh, for mm. poor people, and the debt, the debt trap, and the debt burden is, you know, it, it tends to hurt those who are most in need. But but when you think when you look at the flip side of this argument, you know, which is you know sort of one of the traditional pushbacks that uh, more conservative people want to make is that you know you know debt forgiveness incentivizes abuse and and irresponsibility such that you know when you forgive debts of poor countries you're basically encouraging inefficiency and bad behavior right and mm. and this this latter argument actually when you think about it it's not it's not without merit so you look at a country like Uganda that was a beneficiary of the hippic initiative you know the you know Heavily yeah. poor countries initiative uh, that came around in uh, the early 2000s. You know, uh, Uganda was a beneficiary of HIPIC along with uh, other countries like Ghana. And in you know only a couple of decades now, Uganda's debt 
situation is, I think, you know, as bad or perhaps even worse than it was 20 years ago. Why? Because you see, you have a, a, a coterie of the elite in Uganda, in Kampala, led by Mr. Museveni, who go on accumulating debt and abusing the money and stealing a lot of it, using it in a manner that does not help the public, does not help the citizenry. And, and now then they, you know, they're going to, you know, benefit from debt forgiveness and then they go back to doing precisely what they had done previously. And so I'm a little bit lost on where to fall on, on this matter. I mean, on the other hand, I, I fully understand why, you know, being burdened by debt for poor people is a problem. But mm. then, you know, what about the, the, the elites who mess up and misuse the money and then they go on, you know, getting debts all the time? Where is the accountability? There are no serious consequences for people who are abusing resources of you know, public resources in, in Uganda today. How do you reward that kind of government with debt forgiveness? It, it doesn't it just doesn't make sense at all. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really fascinating to hear from someone so well acquainted with these issues, the real story as to uh, what's been going on over the past couple of, uh, of months and indeed uh, last several decades in Uganda. So thank you so much, Moses Kisa, for joining me on the show. It's my pleasure, Grace. I hope I was able to share any useful thoughts and insights. <laughs>